This is the final word, a regular regulation, final word, weekly show. We're not doing a video, we're not doing a daily, we're not doing a story time, we're not catching up on anything else. We are just sitting down to do the weekly show. The only quirk being that I'm still in Delhi. You're back in London for a flying visit, Adam, to see your family. Fair enough. And uh, you've taken a little bit of Delhi home with you. I have. Uh, hi, Jeff. Yeah, the, the, the familiar-looking uh, sofa that you're on right now that um, I spent a lot of time working on when I was sharing that place with you. I can't believe you guys are still in Delhi. Um, how long till you leave Mumbai, for Mumbai, rather, by the way? Tomorrow morning at the time of recording. So we've, okay. we've got Bharat's book launch tonight, so we've sort of figured out how to stay on for another night here and then... Um, uh, then we'll be we'll be flying in the morning off to Mumbai. The you know the next step in our relationship. Going to meet his mum, <laughs> see see if she likes me, uh, and then a few days after that we'll be off to indoor to start making the first of many jokes about indoor cricket. Yeah, I hope so. I've always been good meeting the mum. Um, it's been kind of something I've been over the years quite yep. good at. So I, I'm going to back you on that front, Jeff. Uh, you're right. I have taken some of Delhi home with me. The Delhi influenza. I haven't had this clarified, but. Google would strongly suggest that the Delhi strain of influenza is the one that I've got, which is why my voice will be a bit scratchy and you'll hear me coughing from time to time, although DC will pick up a few of those. But yeah, the, the fever dreams I had um, before leaving, uh, well, where mm. you still are, continued. Uh, my first night back in London was a brutal one. I think I might have turned the corner in my second crack at sleeping last night. The first wasn't too good, the second things improved a little bit. So I, I feel like I'm on the right track now, having had a pretty rough four or five days and um, mm. you know, I, don't, I don't return to India for another five and a half days. I get to indoor the day before the, the third test match, so it should work out okay. Has had me thinking though, Jeff, I'm not sure if this has crossed your mind either, but we're going to be in India for the World Cup you know, later in the year. I wonder whether there's any consideration given to whether Delhi is a suitable venue, not because it's not an interesting place to be and it's no reflection on the on the people or the or the history. I, I really enjoyed being there on, on that front, but just purely down to the pollution. Like the pollution levels it can't be divorced from the respiratory issues that literally everybody from our touring party have experienced over the last whatever it's been now, week and a half since we mm. left Nagpur. These things have to be related in in some way and we're only journalists who spend much of the day inside imagine what it must be like for cricketers even vulnerable at risk health-wise cricketers there'd be some of those coming out presumably for the world cup who have underlying health conditions and being in a city with that much pollution i i, I don't know do you reckon there'd be consideration to given to such a thing i don't know if there'd be consideration given to it because i think basically if the indian board wants to schedule a game there then you know the icc has no clout to try to say that that's not the case but I think there should be consideration for it. it it's an interesting one right because so when I came to Delhi in 2016 I didn't know anybody here and I didn't really get any connection with the city I didn't feel like I'd, I'd got into the town in yep. a way whereas this time around I've met a lot of people I've been yep. taken out to different places eaten in different places seen different parts of town and there's a lot to love about yeah. Delhi, there there are there are fascinating parts of town. There are so many interesting people. I mean, it, it's it's such a, a confluence of interesting people who come here, who who move here because they're getting into whatever line of work they're getting in. It's got this history, and and there are you know a lot of lifelong Delhi people who are really 
fond of it. It's their place. It's where they grew up. They've got that hometown feeling about it. And that exists at the same time as the fact that it's a horrendous place to live in terms of the air quality specifically. And that sort of grey haze that we would see driving to the ground and, and driving back, um, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say I've tried to go running here, but I've gone out into the street to sort of weave my way among what, all of the obstacles and, you know, get some sort of exercise. And it's like you can hardly breathe, like your eyes sting, your lungs hurt. It's yeah. it's intensely unpleasant to do. And I, I don't know how elite athletes are supposed to perform at their best when those are the conditions they've got. You know, the Australians have not said a word about it because they don't want to be seen to be complaining and making excuses and so on. But I think it's pretty logical to conclude that they're not delighted about the conditions that they've been expected to play in. And how can anybody be expected to... Like, when you've got a an air quality ranking index that's into the hazardous zones, that's into the plus 300 range that says nobody should be outside, nobody should be breathing this in, this could have serious health consequences. How is it justifiable to send people out and, and expect them to exert themselves in that sort of environment? Yeah, a colleague of mine made the point off air during the week that if we were in Australia and, and, the, and the air quality was up at that number, we would be banned, we'd have our doors locked by the government, they wouldn't let us out. Now, mm. I know that that's not fair to project that um, standard on a on a developing economy. And I know there's various viewpoints on this and I don't want to get into the politics too much, but I think where there is an opportunity to protect the players, they're, they're duty bound to consider that. When England were here or there rather in Delhi a few years ago in a white ball tour, they were reduced to having to have saline drips to replenish their bodies, having taken in so much pollution. There was the, the Sri Lankan side in 2017 or thereabouts, Jeff, if I recall correctly, who, mm. wore, who wore face masks out onto the field before any of us had worn a face mask pre-COVID, well pre-COVID. So anyway, I'm sure this will amount to nothing, but it's our lived experience. And I'm not saying this just because I'm crook. Everybody we work with has been ill in some form or another this week. And again, it can't be a coincidence. So the Australian focus largely has been on what's gone wrong. <laughs> I know you and Brett did a good job on the post-mortem yesterday. I just want to um, flag, there was a good piece on Crick Info yesterday about flicking and sweeping and uh, and the various different perspectives there. Jared Kimber had a good piece on his sub stack as well about how batting has fundamentally changed in India since 2010 and how India used to be the easiest place to bat in the world statistically. Now it's by far, by a mile, the hardest. And I, I reckon that like my overarching view a few days out from all of this is that they knew this coming in. Like everybody knew that India was going to be a nightmare to bat in, yet they had mm. their most important players running around in the big bash like minutes before jumping on their flights. In hindsight, that was a, a big strategic error. I understand the financial imperative of fattening the pig, given that it was a TV rights deal year and, and all the rest of it. I, I get why it played out the way that it did. I understand why they want Steve Smith going out slaying hundreds for the Sydney Sixers. It makes sense commercially, but... Mm. Really what they should have been doing is trying somehow to give themselves the best chance in these conditions and a couple of days on North Sydney number two and a couple of days in Bangalore, you know, is never going to be sufficient. I don't care what they say about, oh, their prep was fine, their prep was fine. The truth is most of their senior players were playing T20 cricket a week before and were on the treadmill flying across the country, mm. zipping across, you know, Smith flying over to Perth for that game over there and Warner saying he was exhausted and, you know, there was a better way of managing this. I'm not saying it's everything. It's not everything. I don't want people to think that I'm making excuses for the top seven, but it's not nothing either. There, There is something in this. The other part of that, though, is that if spending a week 
preparing on those sort of surfaces and so on isn't enough. Is spending two weeks going to be enough? Is playing a, to a game against a really shit side that the BCCI decide to put up of substandard players on a pitch that has no relationship to the kind of pitches sure. you'll have in the Test Series? Does that do anything? We, like, we've seen tour matches be fundamentally neutered by home boards and this yes. happens in Australia, in England, in India. I mean, they generally don't even play tour matches anymore. It, you know, most teams just don't bother doing it. But that's partly because they kept getting stitched up by the home board who'd say, sure, you can play our 47th to 50th worst spinners on a flat track that'll give you no preparation and, you know, see you later. I, I definitely agree. And Daniel and I spent some time talking about that problem a few weeks ago before you arrived in India. So that that's true. I, I acknowledge that. But even just being in the conditions in their own environment, if they didn't want to play a match, they could have spent longer there. They could have done a training camp in Dubai or, or somewhere like that. But again, this, this reinforces the scheduling drama that's going to continue to be a challenge for Australian touring sides. It may not be a, a yeah. challenge for... A, a little while into the future because next year they go to New Zealand in this window and that won't be as different as this is. But it feels like the India series requires a different level of investment ahead of time to give yourselves any opportunity. Shilberry, in his book last year, we had him on the show, I think late last year, has a bit on in there about you, you can't truly acclimatise to Queensland until you've been there for a month. Now, like, you know, he's exaggerating the point to make a point, but I think the same is probably true of India. You need to be there amongst it to kind of have any real chance of succeeding, I think, and uh, especially given how hard it is to bat in those conditions and how good India are, I don't think they've given themselves every opportunity. Well, and, and it's never going to change. You can't see a way that it is going to change, you know, at what point, unless unless the Australian management says in the Future Tours program we're going to chop out a month here which is going to be preparation for the next India tour then. what will be the big bash well this is the, well, the, well the thing is it, would, it, it, it is the big bash right so and that's where the compromise would need to be and, and to an extent it was in 2017 like it's not as though the big bash wasn't being played in January 17 but they found a way to get them over the, to Dubai because they didn't want to get beaten 4-0 again because in 2013 that was very embarrassing for Pat Howard and the powers that be so Pat Howard made sure that they had an extra step in the prep process that time. And lo and behold, they came out of the blocks really well and won the first test match. Again, it's not causation, uh, you know, completely. Mm. I'm not saying it's everything about that that test victory, remembering, but they have only won one of 17 in India since the victory in Nagpur in 2004. And the only one they did win was after a fortnight of dedicated practice on raggers. So, I mean, it's not nothing. Well, yeah, and it's also worth noting that since that point, you know, since, since after that Pune game, Australia have won two tests against India and India have won eight against Australia and that that's home and away. So, you know, India have come to Australia and, and won in that period of time as well. So it, it's a dominant period for this Indian team, certainly in terms of the top order batting. They're probably the weakest they've been during that period, but the lower order keeps making runs. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't see a whole lot changing in indoor, but I, I suppose we'll find out. There's a, a couple of bits of good news coming through during the week. The National Indigenous Cricket Championships are back. Um, missed a couple of years for COVID, but that's happening in Alice Springs. So it's exciting that that's back on the field. And also that the National Inclusion Championships wrapped up just shy of a couple of weeks ago. So uh, Victoria took home the silverware with the deaf team and the intellectual disability team and New South Wales won with the blind team. And I was just looking through the photos taken from that tournament and it's like there's so much passion and joy in the the photos from the winning finals, the the team, you know, the celebrations of wickets falling. Uh, it's, I don't know, it's a, it was, it's a really thrilling thing to see that 
these teams are getting promoted, that they're getting the opportunity to, to play at this top level and, and to, to win trophies that really mean something to them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The fact that it's getting increased coverage from the governing body as well. Uh, you see a lot of press releases go out that get picked up by, you know, all sorts of different media outlets. It all contributes to making it a more inclusive game, which is a which is a great thing. Speaking of cricket and being an inclusive game, we haven't actually plugged the fact, Jeff, that you've done a really interesting interview with our colleague Andrew Wu from the City Morning Herald and The Age with Barat about the piece he wrote about his experiences with racism when he was in India in 2017. Yeah, so I sat down with the two of them and... Um basically let them have the conversation you know stayed out of it as best I could because they've each you know in the last few months um, Barat wrote his piece about the experience of coming up against niggling racism in Australia and, and then Andrew wrote about his experiences on the 2017 tour to India where he was quite surprised as an Australian of Chinese descent he was surprised to be targeted for that reason you know that to be told that he was an illegitimate voice on cricket because you know if you had a Chinese background you couldn't know anything about cricket and I mean it's quite an interesting story as well where he he was he was active in tracking down some of the people who were hurling this abuse at him and you know took active steps to stop it so but it's it's a really nuanced interesting conversation that uh, Barat and Andrew have and uh, I think people will get a lot out of it in the second half of the show. Right, so what we're going to try and do, you've got to get to Barat's book launch and I mm-hmm. don't think it makes sense for me to spend too long recording today because my voice isn't too crash hot. Well, I think my voice is okay but my lungs are full of mm-hmm. fluids so, you know, let's keep this brisk but we do have stuff to get through. Yep. Bit of housekeeping to begin. Uh, well, I say housekeeping, a match report we never did. It was the final yep. World 11 game. I, I reported on your victory with Daniel but I couldn't give any meaningful details. So, Jeff, give us the 30-second summary on how the final Word 11 <laughs> did the job on the 26th of January. Well, yeah, because I wasn't on the show that week and then you weren't on the following week and then we had a week where we didn't do Mm. one. So this is the first chance we've had to do it. And Peter Lewis, who runs the Newtown Browns team, uh, chipped me for doing an inadequate job with the match report on last year's show. So I've I've got to come good this time (laughs) around. I mean, what a day, though. Like, absolutely glorious day. Birchgrove Oval is right by Sydney Harbour. You've got the bridge in the background. You can jump in the water, which we did after the the game, and uh, have a swim to cool off. A hot day. And, I mean, respect to the Newtown Browns. They've been doing this for about 25 years because on the 26th of January, it's the only time when, because it's a public holiday, where all of the higher you know, the grade teams and so on are not using the turf wicket at Birchgrove. So it reminds me a bit of the the rabbis going down to have a round of golf on Christmas yes. Day, you know, yes. <laughs> before they're allowed to join the club and that, that sort of thing. Like that's the day when you can get a really posh turf wicket at a beautiful cricket ground. And so they've been doing that. They got the final word to pull a team together last year after their opposition ran out of players basically. So... Well, what did we do? We made it four from four, the final word, unbeaten across continents in, in four attempts at this point. We, we're going to go down sometime soon, but it's, it's been a nice start. Won the toss and batted. So John O'Halen, who regular listeners to the show will know as our Jody Hicks correspondent, uh, his son Louis is now 17 and developing into a real gun cricketer and usually has to keep wicket, so he was allowed out to bowl in our game, which he was delighted about. But opened the batting with Rahman, 
they both retired. I think it was 25 we had as the, the retirement point. And then you can come back in it. At the end, uh, we had Ian H who showed up and uh, smoked a couple of beautiful shots through the covers. And then it was the, the John O'Halen show at number four. He wore them. He got hit a few times. And then he was clubbing them over deep mid-wicket and just having a great old time out there. Glenn Finkeld, who regular listeners will also know of, you know, what do you call it? Recidivist nerd pledger. Um, <laughs> always always popping up with a new number. Steady as a rock with 20 through the middle order. I have to tender a formal apology to Mike Wood, who I absolutely torched with one of the worst runouts you'll ever see. Look, I mean, I was like, just run on everything. There'll be a run there. Uh, there wasn't a run there. Um, the, and uh, Anthony Sherwood, who some people might know is writing, um, also produced a jaunty Rhodes to run across and field the ball and get back and just throw himself into the stumps to affect the run out at the non-striker's end. Anyway, all went well. We set him 178 to win. And so we had this father-son duo playing with Jono and Louis. And then there's Tim and Henry on the other team who are also a father-son duo. Tim's cricket claim to fame is that he played a, a, a solitary first-class match against the touring Australians in 19... Maybe it was 89, I reckon. It was, it was a, who a did long he, way who back. Did he, who did he play for? He played in one of the... I think it was a minor county select 11 ah. kind of deal and you can tell he was a proper batter in his pomp because he had the clip off the pads you can't clip off the pads unless unless you could bat you know so most of his shots ended up at square leg but we did have a deep square leg out so some uh, wonderful bowling from our lot Steggs coming on to open the bowling with left arm orthodox you know I enjoyed pulling that rein and uh, he didn't let us down. Mike Wood got a couple of wickets and he he told me, he said, don't worry about it, wickets are better than runs. Um, and we, we made up over a chocolate milk. We had Tom who just discovered the show and had showed up and was looping some off spin. I mean, sensation of the day, a tall bearded Scottish gentleman by the name of Abs, you know, shaved head, big beard, looked like a bouncer, very softly spoken and a little bit shy and showed up and, and didn't know anybody, he just showed up on spec. And I said, what do you do? And he went, well, I, uh, you know, uh, I bowl left arm wrist spin and I can't bat. I was like, all right, you're at 11 um, and we'll bring you on through the middle overs. And he bowled literally off a step and was floating down these huge sort of moon balls. And uh, what do you know? Picked up three for nothing, three for eight across three overs or something, unhittable. Um, Louis, the 17-year-old, turned out to be the master tactician. He, he was telling me where to put the field and I was just going along with it. I was like, sure, captain by committee is fine. Popped himself like halfway back at mid-wicket. He was like, I reckon they're going to top edge out here. Promptly took two catches in that position. Oh, yes. And then the retirees came back and so they were still in the game because, you know, the, 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 the father-son to you, I can both bat. They needed about another 50, I reckon. Uh, we had Paul Batfay with the... He, he's got this red cap that he wears and when he turns it backwards, he becomes a bowling demon and he's bowling these in-swingers that were unhittable. Louis ends up taking the, the final wicket and Glenn Finkeld takes a brilliant catch out, out at uh, mid-on, you know, coming wide at mid-on, running across to catch the lofted shot and uh, the final word got there by 39 runs. But uh, it's just a glorious day playing against a really good bunch of individuals we had Sarah Berman come down a proper scorer first class scorer come down and do the score sheets for us and set up the frog box and you can you can go back and watch the game on YouTube if you want if you're so inclined see how long the lunch break was it was, it was um, extensive and Pip coming down bringing snacks for everybody um, we had a cheer squad of final word listeners who came just to watch and hang out and um, it was a beautiful sunny summer January 26 and I could not think of a better way to have spent a day. 
these are the best things we get to do, meeting up with the people who listen to the show and, and when we're taking the field playing cricket, all the better. Thanks to everyone who, who came along and made it such a great day. Hopefully there'll be a time when I'm in Australia at that time of year. I think it's an outside chance I will be next year, actually, but we'll see. I think Australia go to New Zealand at the end of the home summer, so that might not be any point me going back home between times. We will see. We will see what's possible with Rachel's mat leave and, and other complicating factors that might might scupper that, but we'll, we'll, have a, we'll have a go at that. I love the idea of that sort of once a year, that opportunity to take the field on a, on a lovely ground and making the absolute most of it. And the fact that there can always be that late twist in a recreational game when the retired batters come back because oh, yeah. there's no second retirement, you know. Like once your mm. retirees return, you can play completely cooked as the chasing side, but the game can turn. So well played, Glenn Finkeld, for holding his nerve, running away to his right. I have seen that clip um, that Sarah Berman posted. Well played, the final word, 11. While we're talking about engaging with us specifically, there's the Lord's Tabs marathon efforts or half marathon effort that we're making at Edinburgh on the 28th of May that we've spoken about at great length in previous eps. People are still signing up each week for that. Not too late, not even close. If you want to be part of this, all you need to do is get in touch with Jeff or myself, finalwarecricket at gmail.com. We'll do the trick. If you're not connected to one of us on social media, probably easier on social media or on Patreon or Discord or, or something like that to make sure that we see it quickly because we don't monitor that Gmail perhaps as um, ferociously as we should. But yes, the um, half marathon plan is going well. The tabs during the week, Jeff released their impact report as well, which which gives a sense of how they've been going in the last 12 months. And I mean, it's really impressive stuff, right? Like when you kind of go through all the numbers, 90% of people that were involved in the TAVs program said they felt more included because of the TAVs cricket programs. They've still got lofty ambition. The TAVs over seven decades have always been fiercely ambitious and they're determined to do as much as they can to help as many as they can of the 4 million young people at risk of inequality or 1.2 million young people with a disability who have less access to sport than otherwise might be the case. So in 2023, they're starting a a new program with a view to working in special needs education facilities to try and bring cricket to 1,500 of those around the country, developing a youth voice forum with young people to shape their aims and objectives moving into the future and delivering their Super Ones disability cricket in every county in England, Wales and Scotland by the end of 2023, a year ahead of schedule. So... Plenty going on with the tabs, and as we say, the only thing we're really asking at this point is to sign up to the newsletter. By doing so, you learn all of this information on Rattling Off, and you can too involve yourself in an activity to raise some money for some of the best people in our game. And there are all kinds of activities. They're not all running marathons. Some of them are very much no. the opposite <laughs> of running marathons for the kinds of people who never want to run a marathon or think about running a marathon. So uh, you will know what the different kinds of um, ways that you can get involved are if you get on the mailing list. The link is in the show notes and uh, just click on there. No obligation to do anything else except know about what's happening. We've got some cricket uh, of a professional nature to whip through. As I said at the start, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this today, but bear with us. Obviously, a lot going on right now with the programming that we're making, different countries. I'm trying to spend some time with the family. So we'll do the best we can. So England's basballers were back in Mount Monganui uh, during the week, Jeff. Uh, they won by 267 runs without ever really being threatened. I loved Harry Brook, man of the match again for like, what is it, three tests in four or something like that. Um, He Mm -hmm. came ever so close, 11 runs short of making a fourth test century in four matches or is it a fourth test century in three matches? Whatever it is, the kid's a bloody star. 89 from 81 balls in the first innings to set it up. Uh, Then 
It was the usual suspects with the ball for England uh, in their first innings with the rock in hand. So Anderson three, Robinson four. Broad went round a little bit. So much so there was a piece in the paper saying that maybe he's not in England's best 11 anymore. So when England did well in the second innings, they made 374 to give themselves loads of runs to work with to defend, to finish. They had about five half centuries there, including a second one for Harry Brook. Broad came out under lights on night well, I guess it would have been night three, and bowled four blokes in a row. <laughs> Very Stuart Broad energy. Now, you're going to question my spot. I'm going to knock over Tom Latham, Devin Conway, Kane Williamson, and Tom Blundell, all before stumps, hitting all of their off for middle stumps with four extraordinarily beautiful deliveries. Yes, under lights, pink ball, new pink ball, etc. All those caveats, but you're still going to have the skills to do it and pull it off and, and the guts to pitch it up early on too. And, and so he did. So Broad takes four and then the next day to finish it off Jimmy four for 18 from 10.3 and in doing so has returned to the top of the world rankings he's nearly 41 he's the oldest player to be the number one according to the ICC and the way they do it retrospectively since Clary Grimmett in 1936 Um, and it's the sixth time that Anderson's been the number one test bowler overtaking Pat Cummins who's had that Mm. belt if you like since uh, February 2019 so Cummins long reign at number one comes to an end for now at least um, due to the old timer Anderson who you know people still keep wanting to, to pension him off and speak of retirement whisper it uh, you know this guy's going to take 800 wickets not 700 <laughs> you know he's in a way it played out as we thought because New Zealand are nowhere at the moment so you're telling me that Clary Grimmett was number one in the world retrospectively in 1936 he was yes 1936 before he got stabbed in the back before he got stabbed Bradman. in the back yeah that's Frank right Frank fucking Ward right so uh, it, it, that is very James Anderson energy and I mean yeah as long as as long as the eternal calf muscle actually stays intact then yeah why not I mean why not just just keep rolling on and uh, I mean Stuart Broad like he hasn't actually got to bowl in that many pink ball test matches if you think about it there've been a couple in Australia and not much else. There was I mean, the one in, yeah, there was the one, one. He, dominated, he dominated one at Birmingham. The first one they played him, it's a long time ago, 2017, he had a night out there against the West Indies yeah. when they bowled him out twice in a day. But you're right, like he hasn't played loads of pink ball cricket, but he's really well suited to it. I mean, mm. as shown what he did this week. Yeah. Oh, well. Um, yeah, we, we just keep it, we'll keep extending the, uh, well, this is all well and good, but can they do it in fill in the blanks? Um, oh, yeah. I saw, I saw a bit of this... Um, from some crazies online. Oh, it means nothing's happened but in India and India. Like, you, you're not allowed to, you can't just decide when you play teams. You can't kind yeah. of say to the ICC, hang on, guys, hang on, we, we, we can't play anyone else. We've got to go to India and India. I saw one, I saw one. There's one particular cretin who does the rounds yeah. who was advancing this view on social media that it means nothing unless they beat India and India. I'm like, for fuck's sake, yeah. for fuck's sake. It's not it's all series. about, it's not all about you. It's not yeah. all about India. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's not how... Anyway, anyway, yeah. they do you're play allowed, India. You're allowed to play cricket in other countries. Other countries are allowed to play cricket between each other. <laughs> and the results of those matches are allowed to count. All of that is real. Uh, well, uh, what uh, do you well. do? There is another test match in New Zealand next week. And, and New Zealand are cooked. So uh, they've got huge structural issues. They had the pull any number of changes. Trent Bolt was technically available, apparently, but not called upon despite living locally because he's not contracted. So they brought in Scott Kugelan instead, which in itself is a, a topic that, Jeff, you've spoken about. You've written yeah. about Kugelan. I don't know as much about it as you do. And people have asked us to have this discussion again, and we will. But I think it kind of fits into that box where we wouldn't be doing it justice by 
spending 30 seconds on it. We have done it before. We will do it again properly. I would simply say most people defending Scott Kugelan have not read the court transcript. They will point at the verdict and they will treat that as the only thing that matters. Read the transcript, read his testimony, testimony read the things that he admits to having done and then make a decision from there. It is an absolute embarrassment that New Zealand have picked him. I mean, they're, they're letting down half the people in their country, they're letting down everybody who's been targeted by sexual violence over their lifetimes. Um, and it's, it is really shameful and it's bitterly disappointing from a, a board who you expect better from, even though they'd sort of picked him in some white ball stuff in the past. It, it is still feels different when it's a test match. Um, but, yeah, we can, we can talk about this in more detail uh, at another time. Uh, well said. Uh, Sheffield Shields been back after the Big Bash hiatus. Uh, there have been four completed games and a couple of games that are still running at the moment. Most final word interest was the Juno this week where Victoria were playing because of Glenn Maxwell returning. He got an absolute stinker in the first innings. Wouldn't have hit a fucking third set down the leg side. That's when he was on five as well, so he wasn't out of the blocks or anything like that. Unfortunately, in the second innings, that was a, a blameless dismissal. And by that, I mean it was just a good nut from Wes which he missed and got bowled for a duck. So a double failure for Maxwell. I don't expect, despite our hopes, that he'll be flown out to join the test squad. How do you make 100? No, nobody's being flown out. We've, nobody's we've being had flown that out. confirmed okay. today. Mitchell Swepson's coming back. Ashton yeah, going home. That's the only change. Yeah, fair, to be honest, fair enough. I mean, you could probably justify Aaron Hardy coming out if you want a bit of cover for Cam Green. That was a mistake not having Hardy in the squad anyway, I think, in hindsight. Like, Hardy should have mm. played last week. I know he hasn't had a bumper shield season, but he's clearly the next best all-rounder in the country and has been a match winner in a shield final. And that's as close as we've got to test cricket, a shield final. So anyway, bygones. So Victoria pumped South Australia. The week after, they thumped Queensland. So two big wins for Victoria that put them into second spot. Marcus Harris made a century against Queensland, against Nister and Steckity, which I think is important for him. That, you know, MCG, lively track, which it has been the last few years. Nister and Steckity, two guys who are in and around test cricket at the moment, albeit with Steckity yet to get a baggy green. So Marcus Harris probably needed something in this stretch to get him going again, given there might be an opportunity coming up at the top of the order sooner than we think. It's been Will Sutherland leading that Victorian team as a younger captain, so that's going well. Took four wickets against Queensland. But yeah, for the Vicks, the main story is Matthew Short, who made 70 in the first innings and 119 in the second at the junction in Lively. Well, I say Lively. I, uh, in conditions where the ball was hitting the edge a lot, I watched the um, South Australian highlights of their second innings before and there was like eight wickets taken from outside edges and that suggests that it was a surface that gave a little bit to the seamers and Short... There was, who was, dinner- there was a lot of grass on that pitch. They, they yeah. finally went, oh, okay, we need to stop rolling out these shit, shit Juno <laughs> flatties um, for, for Marcus Harris to make 300 on and do something with some, right. some spice in it. Yeah, right. And look, against an attack, a South Australian attack who took 20 wickets against the top of the table WA last week. So just reinforcing that Short's innings was an important one in that second dig and, yeah, puts himself probably on the in that kind of next layer down of players who um, who might find themselves um, in, in consideration for England if he can finish the Shield season really well, acknowledging it's his first first-class century, but across all three formats, he's, he's now a match winner for Victoria. So he won't be a million miles away from the conversation. I know that's crazy when 20 years ago you needed 20 first-class tons to get in the conversation, but that's the, the way that the game has changed. I mentioned South Australia beating... Western Australia, that, that's a pretty big win. WA have been awesome this year. It puts South Australia into third spot 
And they're not a million miles away from Victoria, even having been de- defeated by Victoria this week. That If they have a good second half of the season, they, they still could yet make it to the Shield final. They beat WA after a Daniel Drew double-ton, Nathan McSweeney century, unbeaten in the second innings. And the other Nathan, McAndrew, claiming seven wickets for the match. And yeah, WA couldn't hold on batting throughout the final day. So yeah, that's it's a bit... Bit to like there from the, the South Australians who, what, they went, was it two and a half years without a win or something like that mm. until they... they oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so they're, they're back in town. And the other game that was completed last week was between New South Wales and Tassie, which was a, a rainy draw. Daniel Hughes making a, a century for the Blues. There's a couple of games on at the moment, WA against Tasmania and New South Wales against Queensland, which we'll, we'll have a look through next week. Yeah, well, Barrett's very excited about his Nathans, his South Australian um, <laughs> Nathans, and he was also very excited to see Alex Carey get his first test stumping as well. They've, they've oh, yeah. both... They've been in communication about that. Yeah, Alex Carey said he couldn't do the big celebration and wave to Parrot in the press box because um, India needed about 30 to win and he thought it would probably not go down very well if he was, like, showboating at that point. So, yeah, cool head, cool head prevailed. The Women's World Cup, the T20 variant uh, is going on. South Africa have made it through to the semis. I mean, God knows how because they were awful early, um, but they did manage to run down a total against Bangladesh. And, and get through. I mean, largely because New Zealand have been so bad that they've opened up that gap to let the South Africans make it into that semi-final spot after losing to Sri Lanka early. So it's it's the same. It's the same as 2017. Same matchups: Australia, India, England, South Africa. You know, pretty much going as you'd expect it to go. The issue with women's World Cups when there's two groups is that if you're in Australia's group. There's only really one other game that matters. It's when the second team plays the third team, and in that case. It was New Zealand up against South Africa, and that started the group. So when South Africa gave New Zealand a hiding, it was improbable they would miss out, even having been beaten by Sri Lanka in the opening match of the tournament. like They only needed to stay ahead because New Zealand had their net run rate pulverised by the usual suspects, Australia, earlier on. So, yeah, New Zealand did have two big wins against Bangladesh and Sri Lanka themselves, but that wasn't enough. I wonder whether we might have seen Susie Bates for the last time. She made a half century in their final game. She missed out against South Africa in that game that really mattered, but she's been an all-time great uh, for the White Ferns. But, yeah, New Zealand always getting bounced in World Cup group stages is a is a dreadful theme for them and it's continued at another major tournament here. South Africa aren't impressive. I mean, they, they beat Bangladesh by 10 wickets yesterday, but it took them 18 overs to do it, to chase down 118, and they only scored 26 runs in the power play. And you can see any number of ways where they could have fallen off the tracks there. So, But they've still got good bowlers. So even though their batting's no good, they've still got Malaba, Ishmael, Cap, Kaka, Tryon. Like they've got enough bowlers to get the job done. You know, Australia, for their part, have just kind of cruised. They beat New Zealand by 97 runs without getting out of third gear. They did it so easily. Beat the Bangers by eight wickets, Sri Lanka by 10 wickets. It was kind of a good thing they played South Africa last, which was a better matchup, better contest for them to prepare for the semifinals. They get through without breaking a sweat to play India, who weren't that impressive against Pakistan, Jeff. We watched that game together. They they could have fallen on the banana peel there and they got beaten by England, which was the huge matchup in the other group by 11 runs. Uh, Renuka Singh Dekir took five for 15. She's a bloody star, but a match losing half century from Mandana. She wasn't quick enough and um, Risha Ghosh tried to give them some chance in the very end there in pursuit of 152, but fell 10 runs short. So that means that 
England qualify top, so they get South Africa and Australia get India. And as for England, the only real discussion topic has been about who's going to be the last seamer. I'm not sure if you've picked up on this, Jeff, but a real brouhaha yesterday online when Lauren Bell was rested, which they said at the toss. I was quite a bit confused about the... I was watching the toss and you know Heather Knight said she's being rested. And then um, we, we heard that from the, the England management. It was online straight away anyway. But there was a sense that she'd been dropped or whatever. Like, no, no, no. They were just framing it up with... Catherine Siverbrunt up against Freya Davies, who was given an opportunity to effectively oust Brunt at the last opportunity, last group game, her first of the tournament Davies. But Brunt out her, took two wickets in the power play. So, you know, it'll be Siverbrunt and Bell who get that opportunity to take the new ball in the semi-final. They play in a couple of days' time at, at Newlands and, and Davies will, will, will make way. And, and that's kind of fine, right? That's the depth chart. That's the way tournaments work. You don't kind of give everyone a go for the sake of giving everyone a go, um, which is why Kate Cross hasn't played. You work to a plan and, and that's what England are doing. And Nat Siverbrunt, the other half of the equation, dominating, bashing runs all around the place, you know, as she's been doing for years now. Um, and also that the Irish nearly beat India in the Duckworth-Lewis situation. Yeah. They were five, five runs short on the DLS, which, I mean, fair play to Ireland, who've been impressive considering where they were, you know, only a, a couple of years ago. Although I think it still shows that the DLS in T20 doesn't actually work. I mean, Ireland were two for high 50s. They needed over 100 from about 70... 72 deliveries or thereabouts, there's no way that Ireland are going to get that. They're already two wickets down. Right. They do not have the batting depth. So on DLS, they would have been ahead had they been at, you know, 63 or whatever it might have been. But they're not going to score 100 off the last 11 overs of a match against an Indian bowling lineup. It's not going to happen. So yeah, yeah, ships too rel- much, relative it? strength yeah. doesn't work. Interesting about England, so does Tom, England and India and their relative strengths. Like England have got a better net run rate than Australia. In India, looked nowhere. So, you know, yeah. I think coming into the tournament, we all thought India were the two seed and England mm. were the three seed. Kind of a little bit in redevelopment mode, you know, not quite. Yep. You know, they didn't do well in the Commonwealth Games, for example. But, yeah, England have regrouped pretty well and have been making bulk runs. Their score of 213 yesterday was the highest in the World Cup. That was against Pakistan. So Danny White made a 50 there too. You mentioned that, who's hit two 50s in a row, 80-odd from 40 yesterday. She was within striking distance of a century, actually. She got out in the in the 18th over. And the experience, the engine room players like Heather Knight, who are still there, have been there forever. Sophia Dunkley up the top. If she gets going, she's as powerful as anybody in world cricket. So... Yeah, I mean, I know I joked on the podcast before the World Cup that you could run a simulation of this tournament 100 times and Australia would win 98 of them. Well, you know, maybe 95 of them. Maybe 95 <laughs> of them um, between now and, and the end. So the, the, the finals are... And I, and I don't think it's going to be India, is my point. I think Australia will, will do well against India and it'll probably be Australia-England playing in the final as they did in this format most recently in the 2018 final in Antigua. So it's um, Thursday, Friday semi-finals. Australia-India is Thursday. England-South Africa is Friday. The finals on Sunday, all in Cape Town. All in Cape Town. And still on women's cricket, Tasmania have made the WNCL final again. Uh, so they won it for the first time last year. They've done a lot of recruiting over the last couple of seasons after being very uncompetitive for a long time. So they've got the chance to go back to back, which no team aside from New South Wales has done those ridiculous New South Wales periods where they won six in a row, then they won 10 in a row, 
then they won three in a row. So New South Wales has still won 20 out of 26 editions of the WNCL. <laughs> it's the 50-over competition. Victoria's won twice. South Australia won once. But interestingly, the last three years, WA won it, then Queensland won it, then Tasmania won it. So no New South Wales in the last three years. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this will be four years because they're not in the final this time. So it's interesting how, how that's flipped around. But that final will be live on pay TV in Australia, which is a nice development as well. And the fact that, you know, it's a different configuration of the... When they're at a global tournament, half the Aussie team are from New South Wales, aren't they? So, you know, it, it does change things somewhat, as it often does when you've got domestic... Well, it comps. didn't used to. didn't matter <laughs> if the Australian didn't used team to. was away. That's yeah. true. It didn't, didn't used to. Okay, Jeff, we've got enough time for the briefest bit of Nerd Pledge, and you've got to jump in a car. Right, let's do it. It is Nerd Pledge. It is the game that we play with people who listen to this show, who fund this show by sending in contributions of a number that relates to cricket in some way and we have to figure out what it means. Our nerd pledger today is Gareth Cottis, who was sent through in pounds sterling 320. And so that decimal point could go anywhere, 320, that's our number. I'm going very straightforward because I wanted to cross it over with a little bit of news this week. This might be cute, okay. but I'm doing it anyway. Temba Bavuma is South Africa's test cap 320 in the men's side of the game. And there have been a lot of shake-ups with the South African test team with a new coach coming in. And the big one, the major one, is the captaincy. So Dean Elgar is still in the team, no longer captain. Bavuma mm. will be the captain from this point on, which is interesting given that, you know, there was criticism of his place as the T20 captain given that he's not naturally such a T20 ball striker and there might have been more qualified players to be in that 11. There aren't any questions about his spot in the test 11. He was one of the few players to stand up to Australia a little bit on that last tour on different occasions um, he's got that that temperament and he's developed that gravitas within the side over the period of time that he's been in there but Temba Bavuma will be leading South Africa in the test team from now on which is and it's hugely significant as well to have a, a black African captain of the test side because we haven't seen that before. Yeah, uh, it's a really interesting career, Bavumas. I mean, it's that it's that unfortunate ratio problem, isn't it? One century, 20 plus 50s. He's been really consistent. Uh, like he's got a batting average in the mid 30s, which is more than passable for South Africa at the moment. Um, if you average 30 odd, you're in. And he's made important contributions against Australia, for example. In the field, he's brilliant. He's been like last year, look through his numbers. There are so many scores between say 30 and 70, but he's yet to really become a match winner. And they'll need him to do that as captain. He'll need to be the type of captain who improves from the minute he takes on the armband, not the other way. And unfortunately for Elgar, that was his experience as leader. He had a an excellent test record as an opener. He was a, a hundred maker. He was a, a bloke who carried his bat a couple of times. He was a guy who'd steadily improved. He'd been the ICC team of the year a few times. And upon becoming captain, I mean, he had a lot of respect around the world for the hard-nosed way he goes about it and the dedication he has to test cricket. But his returns dropped off so dramatically as skipper that it makes sense to make this change now because they need the Elgar runs. But yeah, I'm really hopeful that for Bavuma, this can be the, the catalyst for something more because yeah, being consistent is great, but test matches and test series aren't won by players who consistently reach 50. They're won by guys who can take games away from fielding teams and he'll need to start doing that. 
Gareth Cottis, I bet that's not your number, but you can let us know. Drop us a message and we'll come back to it on the revisits. If you want to send us a nerd pledge, patron.com slash the final word. That is how we are able to keep making this show uh, and that's how you're able to get involved with our online community. So uh, jump on in. It's a lot of fun. All right, we're going to take a break on the final word. On the other side of it, Jeff with Brat talking to Andrew Wu from the Sydney Morning Herald. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word. Jeff Lemon still in Delhi uh, and we're sitting down for a chat with Andrew Wu of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, smh.com.au, uh, etc. He's covering this tour for those two newspapers. And Barrett Sundarason, who's covering the tour for Crick Buzz and who also sometimes hosts this show. So it, it's kind of weird introducing you as like uh, also a guest on the show. But I suppose this is a guest conversational segment. There's a parallel between you two, because Barrett, you recently, a couple of months ago, wrote a piece about experiencing racism from people in Australia, and Andrew, you've just written a piece about the experiences that you had on your last trip to India in 2017, which, as you said, haven't been repeated this time around. I guess we'll, we'll get into what actually happened in a minute, but what I wanted to ask both of you about initially was the, the lead-up to writing something like this, because it seems like it must be a, an intimidating thing. It must be an awkward, unpleasant experience to to know that you have these things that you want to say, but to know that if you put your head up above the parapet, people will take pot shots at you. Uh, to know that it's, it's probably good to do it for some other people, but there are going to be bad consequences at the same time. Like, uh, I can only imagine there'd be a sense of dread to publishing something like that, knowing what's going to come next. I actually didn't. I didn't really think about uh, people getting upset or whatever. I mean, it's an experience from six years ago that I haven't thought about too much. Um, I wasn't initially going to come to India to cover the tour and I got called in quite late in the piece. And and once that happened, it started bringing back a few memories. And and then I had a look at the emails that I had saved and read through them. and, And that transported me back to 2017 being in a hotel room in Ranchi thousands of kilometres away from home it's six o'clock you you finished work for the day you're about to about to head out and and those memories were were quite vivid and I just felt I wanted to tell the story not from the not because I was upset or but in a lot of these situations the person who is racially abused it's often they're the victim and you never really hear about the steps that they take to to right the the wrongs whereas in this situation i i did do something track the guy down and i really wanted to tell that story that there is a path that you can take you don't have to just sit there and cop it on the chin you can you can do a few things about it in my case, uh, as a journalist, and I'm sure Andrew will agree with me, you never want to become the story. Right? Whatever happens, you're almost trained in that way. Whatever happens, you never bring yourself in. And when something like this happens, A, yeah, I mean, as a victim, you feel like, should I bring it up? Should I? And it's personality thing as well. Like, you know, for me, it was like, I'm the cool one. I'm supposed to be the one who can deal with anything. You know, how can I suddenly, and honestly, as sad as it sounds now, how can I suddenly be the uncool one who 
puts my hand up and says, hey, I, I don't feel all right. I mean, this is not all right. This, I don't feel okay being spoken to in this fashion. And so I had that working against me as well. Like when I was asked to write the piece uh, for the age, as, as it turns out. But I was aware of, uh, because there was a precursor to me writing the piece was my tweet about uh, the security guards in, at the GABA and at the MCG. So I'd already like experienced the backlash of that, where a lot of people just call you a shit stirrer, right? I mean, they think that you're, you're doing that so that you get some attention, and uh, which kind of worsens it, the, the whole position you find yourself in. So you're like, hey, hang on. So I'm the guy who, or I'm the person who has to deal with this. And when I say this happens, I become the, the culprit in some way, in some weird way where like it's just turned against me. So I'm both culprit and victim, like how does that work? And I think that's something anyone who gets discriminated against anywhere in the world, whether it's on the basis of race or gender or sexual preference, uh, has to experience on a daily basis. Uh, and having moved to Australia five years ago, uh, it's it just builds up, right? And I'm sure Andrew will agree with me. It You don't want to call it out every time but then at at some point it, it's not even like you think about it right it it mm. just reaches a point where something just snaps in your head you know like hang on like fuck this like so i need to do something about this well th i mean that's the the feeling that I, I had as soon as you said that i'm thinking durham shala 2017 and kuri um is, is talking about being Chinaman this, Chinaman that, and and I think the the reporters were saying it's just something in their jar, and and in the two weeks leading up to it, I'd been getting all these emails from a from a troll saying, oh, you know, you, you Chinaman Aussie wannabe, um, how can you be covering cricket? What do you know about cricket? Never send a Chinaman boy on a man's errand, or you know, just filthy stuff like yeah, that, yeah. and and when you said that, it, it's that, that's the first thing that, that came to mind. I mean, and. I remember when I wrote that column, the backlash from from people, I think people in Australia who, who thought, well, what's wrong with this? Like, you can call people an Englishman, you can call people a Frenchman, so what's wrong with Chinaman? And I, I broke it down into three categories, I think. People who, people thought, well, yeah, that's just poor form, I'm with you. And then people who didn't know about it and then heard me and thought, yeah, I see your point. And then other people who just, you couldn't move them. They were set in their ways and they weren't going to budge. It was political correctness gone mad and yeah. and all that stuff. So, but I think, how can you, you, you can't talk about your experiences of racism without bringing yourself into it and people can't understand how that can be. Like, how can you talk about yourself? I suppose also, Andrew, it's this intensifying of things because you've spoken about, you know, you're an Australian of Chinese descent and you're often the only person of Chinese descent or Asian descent at all in a football press box or a cricket press box in Australia where those sports are overwhelmingly white in terms of how they're covered and all the rest of it. And then you come here and there's this intensification of it, which is that, you know, that othering thing, that you're, you're not the kind of person who's supposed to know about cricket. You don't look like someone who's supposed to know about cricket in the, uh, the opinions of these people. And so then there's this resentment, this, this immediate sort of urge that we have to push back on you like that's the thing we're going to pick out if we don't agree with what you're saying oh well exactly i mean that tour was quite stinky um it was how could i say it? i probably wrote quite a few robust stories <laughs> and um and naturally if you if you don't like what someone writes 
he can either play the issue or as you know play the ball or play the man and uh, quite a few occasions they did the latter and my view on all that on you know, cyber bullying or online abuse is that it reflects more on them than it does on me so I don't tend to get too worked up about it but this particular person just kept on emailing me and I think email is a little bit different because you're, you're checking it quite often for work stuff and you just don't expect to see something that's yeah, of that nature so that jarred but then I was, there's a separate thing like if you get racially abused on the street by someone I think that's a that's another level which is why I think your experience at the MCG is a lot different to mine because it was to your face it's quite confronting I'd imagine for you at that time yeah and absolutely it's uh, and it happens very often unfortunately when you look a certain way anywhere in the world look I come from a country which I guess there's racism everywhere in the world which is why I don't believe that there is a racist country like people in India have this a lot of people who haven't been to Australia or even those who've been to Australia that's the first question you're asked hey Australia racist country right and I say no no country is racist there are bigots and racists everywhere in the world there is racism everywhere in the world but you can't just point at one country and say you know they are more racist than anywhere else uh, and so I, I come from a country where you get discriminated in terms of everything the race caste gender I always say it's a pretty privileged position to be born a man in India regardless of what you look like regardless of what strata of society you belong to or the color of your skin uh, but that's where it starts but then as the only dark-skinned member of my family my mother, I remember, throughout my childhood, always wasn't more protective. She was almost uh, apologetic. Like she was like, "I'm so sorry that uh, you're dark-skinned, so people will make more fun of you uh, within the family and uh, within your friend circle." I mean, I was called all sorts of things even growing up in India. I was called a crow. I was like repeatedly, like you know, wherever you were, not just me. People who are dark-skinned. I mean, take Vinod Kamli for example. Like the kind of racial abuse he copped uh, when he was a young junior cricketer. Uh, but back then, you just assume that. I know where this is coming from, sort of, like, you know, so it's more predictable. It, you feel like, okay, if I walk into this situation as a dark-skinned Indian man, I know I'll get racially teased, sure. is a better word. But what happens when you're away from home, I mean, in a, in a different country like in Australia, is it's unpredictable. It's not that everybody's coming up to you and saying nasty things, or it's not that every time you walk into a supermarket, uh, two people are just jumping on you to check what's in your bag, or every time you go into a, a cricket stadium, uh, people are jumping on you to check who you are, and when you show their accredit- your accreditation, they say, ah, oh, can we trust this guy, ha, 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 ha. It doesn't happen every time, so it adds to that unpredictability, adds to... Uh, the uh, the intimidatory f- feeling of that when it happens to you, like you're on edge all the time. You're on edge all the time. You don't know when it's going to jump on you, uh, or at the airport, or or anywhere you go, or, or even little things like when when you know I'm walking my two dogs who are white and who are massive, and I'm not. I'm, I'm massive, but I'm not. You know, <laughs> I'm not as white as them, uh, and I. I stay in a lovely neighborhood but it's predominantly white and the average age would be 65 so the number of times you get asked oh like how much do you charge for walking them and you know it, it's funny at, at to start with and then you say no no they're my dogs and then when they say are you sure 
the first couple of times you're like oh, actually they're not <laughs> I just pick them up at the park <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's what I do I just go to the park find two dogs and especially if they're white just start walking them but the first couple of times because of my my personality and my go to a defense mechanism has always been humor I'm, I'll make a couple of jokes after the third time you're like hang on what do you mean by are you sure so it, it is more in your face and it kind of you can either get like really thick-skinned about it and say ah yeah yeah no it's okay I won't talk about it or after a point you actually realize like Andrew and me as journalists and senior journalists as well sorry we are aging Andrew uh, we have a voice and we need to we need to use it well because that type of racism is a lot different to name-calling because I think most people in Australia, most decent people, would think, oh, I don't call names, I don't call people so-and-so, so therefore I can't be racist. But they may also be the sort of person who on a dark night sees someone of different race, different colour, and then cross the road. And I think that's it's, it's a real subtle, isn't it? It's really nuanced and you probably don't look at it um, and appreciate it until it happens to you. I mean, I, it hasn't happened to me like that in terms of crossing the road, but, I mean, I remember being a kid, I was always seen as, you're Asian, you, you, you know, you're the Asian kid. It wasn't until, actually, I went to uh, live in the UK in 2009 when I was 28 years old that I got introduced as, oh, this guy's Australian, which, is, which I found... Yeah, it's yeah, quite different, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I wasn't looked upon for my race or heritage. It was where I where I lived and where I was born and uh, and all that. So yeah, it's it's something that stayed with me. And there's, uh, I mean, so much of this sort of thing is about people not seeing a world that's beyond the boundaries that they already know, right? And I find it really interesting that if you're a white Australian and you're not a dickhead and you're trying to do your best, then you think about racism as a white people versus everybody else kind of situation because that's, you know, the white people are the majority in our country. Then you come to a place like India and, I mean, racism is entrenched at every level of society, the the way the caste system works, uh, the way that people from other countries have viewed, you know, the way that people look at Pakistanis or Bangladeshis and so on. I mean, and I've lived in a couple of different Asian countries and say Malaysia, for instance, I mean, racism's legally enforced there. If you're a Malay, you have legal privileges and access to banks and funding and university places and jobs and things that if you're a migrant Malaysian, you don't, even though some of those communities have been there 300 years or more. It's, it's entrenched in other places in a way that that I think a white Australian would find shocking if it were to be suggested that this is how we should do things. So, I mean, there's this kind of cosy idea that, oh, racism's just a... This is our problem. We're going to deal with it over here in Australia. But it's it's all over, and it's pernicious in so many other countries. Oh, and it's so deeply entrenched uh, here, and you speak about uh, people from other, other parts of Asia being racially abused here. I mean, the northeastern part of India, where a lot of... Well, most people who come from the Seven Sisters, as they're called, because they share a border with China, uh, they are, I mean, I don't know whether it's a politically correct term, but in India they said to have Mongoloid features uh, because it's close to Mongolia and China, uh, or Oriental features, which again, I don't know whether that's a politically correct word, but they get more racially uh, abused than anyone else in India because they, despite being Indian, and I'm talking seven states with pretty decent populations, 
they never accepted as indian by a majority of other indians i mean they are treated as being alien i mean imagine being in their position like but this is my country but yes i don't look like you the way you would think an indian should look but i belong here my fam like generations of my families have have grown up here but i'm still treated as an outsider because a lot of them uh, a lot of people from the northeastern state i mean some some of our best footballers have come from the the likes of states like sikkim and meghalaya uh, i mean baichung bhutia who's uh, still i think one of the most successful footballers we've ever seen i think one of our colleagues was staying in the baichung bhutia room in the legends inn in nagpur uh, sunil chetri who's one of the most prolific strikers in, uh, in the soccer world uh, also comes from there and there are lots of guys who play soccer from there and i've interviewed a lot of them you know in my early years in journalism they'll come to bombay they all are thrown into these small houses where they're forced to stay together but also they always stick together because they're scared of going out by themselves because they'll get racially abused and in mostly it's just verbal but it could lead to other stuff as well like you know there are idiots everywhere in the world and when the when andrew had to was subjected to what happened even before the email started i won't take his name because i don't want to give that guy any credit a senior he's not a cricket journalist like a cricket person in india was the first one to uh, racially abuse andrew on twitter I, i'm sure andrew would remember this he said what is a chinese man doing covering what happened to australian media is to be the likes of mike coward and all these guys what is a chinese man doing here covering cricket and this happened i think during the pune test and a lot of us jumped on him and people muted him and i don't think muting was an option people blocked him or called him out but nothing really happened but that, but i wasn't surprised that people would take or not take to kindly to andrew covering cricket uh, and i spoke about the northeastern states and chinese people or asian people as they are called in australia i've always been racially vilified in india i mean you see movies or even tv advertisements when i was growing up they were always uh, being portrayed as idiots and like you know brainless people who uh, could easily be you know tricked into doing whatever so that has always been there and then you have a chinese origin guy come here and cover cricket of all places or of all things and talk about virat kohli of all people you know it adds to it and it's it, i had this bad feeling it's going to happen but then it did and then it just was taken to another level were you surprised santa uh well i wasn't expecting it i didn't think that if when i came to india that i'd be racially abused for covering cricket the thought never crossed my mind um but i mean i can't remember at which point that um the stuff started happening but um if if you had to ask me kind of you know, the two or three takeaways from that tour i mean that's that's the one that lingers just the 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 constant abuse and it probably was it's not like I I didn't get thousands of things but all you know it is like two or three messages a day couple of emails and it just chips away chips away and then when you're here for you know I was here for 6 weeks it all adds up and yeah I mean as I wrote in the piece um I was being accused of being biased towards Australia and and upsetting um fans of the Indian team and then when I wrote the piece about the Chinaman I upset Australian fans back home so I mean has that for balance <laughs> yeah and you're in it stuck in a sandwich press at that point because um, you know nothing riles people up more than just moving something that they're familiar with if you're like hey this word you've been using it's it's kind of shit for this reason here's the historical context if you want to not be an asshole you could not use it and instead of going oh well you know it's not going to cost me anything to not use a word you know to 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 shift my terminology it's more like my my world view is under attack because you're trying to 
it's like coming back into your house and finding someone's moved the plates around. You're like, no, no, they don't go there. They go here. It's like people have that sense of discomfort of something familiar shifting without them being the ones to say so. Exactly. And it wasn't like I was saying that people who use the term are racist. I never never said that. But people somehow took that as if I was accusing them of being racist. I think once you know the the origins and, and, and that that term is racist and you continue using it, well, I think you need to have a look at the mirror and say, well, why does it matter that much, dude? Why does a cricket term um, need to continue to be used if it offends a group of people, and especially in Australia? If you want to grow the game in Australia, I know there's a real big push by Australian cricket at the moment to try and get people from you know, Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi heritages, Sri Lankan heritages into the game, but no one's ever tried to get Chinese people into yeah, the game. Exactly. And there's a lot of people with Chinese heritage in Australia and, and it's never never been tapped into. It's still a sport that values toughness, right? And so you're supposed to shrug things off. You're not supposed to, they're like, oh, why are you being offended by this small thing or that small thing, you know? And so it's been interesting to watch you go through this process, Barat, over the last couple of years because initially with when you'd have these run-ins with the grounds, like for a while you said nothing and then you started just telling stories to a couple of us who were closer friends with you. You, you, would, you, would, you would be like, this weird thing happened to me today and I don't know how to feel about it and you, would, you might talk to me or talk to a couple of others and we would say, well, that sounds fucked up and, and you would go, yeah, I, th- I sort of thought it did but I wasn't sure, like you're second-guessing yourself as to whether it was actually a problem or not um, and then you would gradually be a bit more willing to talk about that and then you'd put the tweet up about it and then you put it's like you had to gradually come to this position of deciding that it was okay to talk about it or that it was worth talking about because you had to talk yourself out of minimizing it and saying that it didn't matter oh i i think the first time i even openly spoke about it was the Mohammed Siraj incident in sydney where i witnessed firsthand what it must feel like to be someone far far away from home and you're talking about someone who doesn't understand the English language as well as I do or hasn't even though he's an Indian cricketer hasn't traveled the world as much as I haven't seen it from a different light so to be Mohammed Siraj in that moment well I know a lot of people debate whether whatever was said to him was racist or not but even leaving that aside to be that person feeling so scared and alone I never experienced it in that but I experienced it vicariously almost by watching him having to undergo or you know endure that to our back-to-back days at the Sydney Cricket Ground. And that piece that I wrote for Crick Buzz, I only wrote because I was thinking about it, I spoke about it with Mel on her channel, and as I was walking back and as I put in my piece, the apartment I was staying at in Sydney, that was my first, that was the first time it's, I snapped. Right? I wasn't planning to write anything about I was planning to write about Cam Green's big hitting, honestly. I go back, I'm waiting outside my apartment complex in uh, Potts Point, and this couple are walking out and I've, I, you know how clumsy I am. I have my bag, I have 10,000 10, other things. So I couldn't find my key, the one that you need to just open the, the main gate of the building. And I see this couple who had bumped in, we'd bumped into each other in the lift a few times. And this couple walking out and I thought they were going to let me in because... The, and the guy made sure that the door was closed before I could go in and he walked up to me and said, you know, Uber delivery guys need to stand here. And I was like... 
wait, that's that's not okay, right? Like, you know, by then I'd had conversations with you about various other experiences. I was like, no, nah, I need to like stand up for this. because. And I'll tell you the why, not just me, a lot of people who migrate from this part of the world to places like Australia, even think twice about speaking about anything that is said to you. Because you're always made to believe, not just by people in those countries, like not just by Australians, but by people back home and other Indians who moved there before you that, hey, you owe a lot to Australia, it's changed your life forever. So whatever happens, just cop it and it's fine. And also, you also are told that you represent all of us. So don't call anything or don't make life difficult for us by being a shit stirrer. And I'd always been told that by friends who I won't name, uh, when I would bring up the issue of racism, guy, Indian kids who moved there when they were eight or nine, they would be like, yeah, I was called a monkey in school, so what big deal, man. Why are you like reacting to being called uh, uh, like a black cunt by someone who's just like driving past and you just while you're waiting at the red light. It's okay, it's Australia, man. It's okay, it's tough. Like just speak like an Australian, be Australian, barrack for a footy team. And But I moved there when I was 32. I, I mean, I love the fact that Australia is my home now and I, I can't believe, I can't tell you how grateful I am to Australia for having given me a chance to, you know, have a better life, I guess. But I don't think I owe anything to Australia. It's give and take. Right? Like, I think I bring a lot to Australia, just like it gives me a lot. And I decided that, like, you know, I'm not going to be scared of upsetting the apple cart or upsetting the system and just cop everything that comes my way and just laugh and be silly. I'm going to talk about it. And, and I think that was a big mental change. And even now, uh, even now, I'm here as an Australian journalist, it's, it's mainly like, uh, even though a lot of white people in Australia took umbrage to my piece and like you know said a lot of nasty things wrote a lot of nasty things as some pieces I've shared with you it was also a lot of Indians who moved there and said hey I've been living here for 30 years don't come and change say shit about my country Australia I've never faced racism but I'm like you're part of the problem I don't know how it works in the Chinese community Andrew I'm sure that happens there as well where people are like hey wait this country is safe don't come and start saying these things then it almost like will bring focus on us. Let us just get away with doing whatever we're doing. <laughs> well, the thing I find about Australia and, and when people who, who were born overseas come to Australia and choose Australia to be your home, I get a real sense of pride that people want to come and live in Australia. And I, I can't understand why people would then have a go and abuse people who choose to come to your country to live and make a life for themselves, a new life. I, I, I find that staggering. I'll, I'll, I'll never understand that. I think it's, it's yeah, it just, you're supposed, you're supposed to love your country and these people love your country that much yeah, yeah. and yet you abuse them when they arrive. It's, it, it staggers me. But, I mean, being, being Chinese in Australia, it, it's, um, I tend to find that the abuse against Chinese people has general has subsided i mean covid brought brought a few things back up but generally i think people aren't as afraid of chinese people in australia politically it's different i guess politically people might think yeah the the power of china i'll I'll separate that sort of global politics to just being you know walking down the street but I i grew up in a very white community. I went to schools where they were predominantly white. Um, I played footy. Um, I loved sport. Um, and you know, I didn't mind studying, but I wasn't 
as, as bookish as one might might think. I mean, I got a bit of feedback this week when I wrote the piece about racism and and people were saying, one, one person wrote, well, they used to be captain of their team and then when they went to another school, they were just assumed to be no good at sport yeah, yeah, because yeah. Chinese people, Asian people are only good at academics. Yeah. Um, so... I found racism to be at its worst in the late 90s when Pauline Hanson was in and suddenly we became fair game and you just noticed things when I was out in the footy field. It wasn't so much what was said, it was just when they tackled you they'd sort of give you a little bit more which they wouldn't give other other players. I like to think that maybe it's because I'd won the ball and it's a better player. <laughs> but then, I mean, I was at, it also happened at, at my footy club. I was playing in a game and we were up against another team that had a person of Chinese heritage playing. And one of my teammates just started saying to them, oh, why don't you go play ping pong? And I was thinking, mate, I'm right here. But I didn't have the confidence in it at, at the age of 18 to, to call that out. And I remember being at a function later that night on another night and one of the parents came up to me and said oh which one are you because we had another player in the team who was also of Chinese heritage and, was, and I didn't really say anything at the time no, I don't think they were doing it from a bad place I don't think their heart was in a, a bad place but that sort of thing I, I let go when I was young and it wasn't really until I was about 23 I reckon 24 that I started being a lot more confident in, in who I was and and not accepting that sort of stuff. I mean, I really wish that if Adam Goods, uh, what happened to him in 13, 14, let's say that had happened in the 90s and someone had spoken out, I reckon that would have, I would have been a lot more bold, I think, in, in coming forward as, as a kid. There's still, there's that build up, right, of getting to the point where you are willing to push back and people saying, oh, why didn't you complain about this earlier and so on, but it's like, every time you have to complain about something like that, it costs you. You know, it's an effort. It's not. It's not nothing. It's an emotional effort. It's a social. It, it has social ramifications. Like there are so many times when it would be easier to say nothing. Um, what have been some of the positives out of writing the piece that you've written in terms of the responses you've had? Well, I've went through. Oh, there's been oh, probably hundreds. Um, I'd look at. I've, I've put all the emails that I've received in a little folder, and I intend to go through it and, and, and write back to people. I've started that process, but you, one thing that has stuck out to me is just the number of people um, from um, Chinese or Asian heritage, East Asian heritage, who say they love my work and that they never thought that someone from my heritage could be involved in sport and that they they see me as kind of like a trailblazer and, and have that, oh, I'm so proud that someone like you has done it and, and I can do it myself. And I've never really thought too much about that. But when, when you start reading stuff like that, you, it does, it makes you feel really, really proud that you have that effect on other people. And a lot of what you said before, you do sort of want to be a, you know, I don't know if ambassador is the wrong, the wrong word, but you want to, you represent a bigger group of people than, than just yourself and you want to act accordingly and, and, and make people proud of you because they do, people do look up to us because we're not white Australians yeah. and, and we're involved in, in fields that are you know, typically white Australian fields. Absolutely, and I think uh, 
for me after i wrote my piece uh, and just going back to what you were saying it does it's not easy like you know i i didn't like andrew has 10000 tens of thousands of pieces before i wrote this one but the number of times i had to second guess myself while writing this piece uh, wasn't funny like because i was like wait i put this in but i don't want this to be misconstrued uh, okay maybe i'll write it in this fashion and it is while writing that piece that i it everything started coming back to me i was like oh yeah it was it was that as well oh yeah there was the lady at the airport who said like oh i hope i'm not on the same flight as you oh yeah it was that man who i smiled at when i crossed the road and started walking away and then it they all start coming to you and i'm like you said andrew i'm sure then you sit there all by yourself in your hotel room and it all starts coming to you and you're like wow like you know i i've experienced a lot without really getting my head around it or getting the time to like soak it in uh, so it is quite an unnerving experience to put words to paper and then you wait for Ugh, now what's going to happen like you know uh, i knew there will be a lot of negativity but the fact that it was overwhelmingly uh, overwhelmingly positive uh, just blew me away like the next day i remember taking the train from uh, the western suburbs where my friend gav joshi stays so long train ride number of random people who i never met before old white people to brown people to young white people coming up to me at the railway station at the bus and say hey you're the guy who wrote that piece thank you so much old white men coming up to uh, coming up to me and saying on behalf of my generation i apologize or this brown uncle as we call them in india like must have been in the 60s coming up to me and saying years for i've been living here for years and i've experienced so much i never thought you could talk back i never thought uh you can say anything now after reading your piece you're much younger you could be my son i think i'm going to start saying stuff like he spoke about an incident his daughter uh, had had to uh, deal with the previous year and he said if it ever happens again i'm going to like quote you i'm going to use you as a and i was like wow this is I, i was almost emotional it takes a lot to get me emotional and then i walk into the scg and like people are just coming up to me and thanking me and congratulating me for writing that piece and i go upstairs the entire media center from like adam gilchrist and michael hussey to everyone else coming up to me merv hughes coming up to me and saying if you are the best dressed man i've ever seen in the prayer press box if someone messes with me they're messing with me i will knock them out so it was it was, it was quite like you know overwhelming and a lot of members within uh, within the australian team as well some of the coaching staff who don't have very australian names they came and said like look we experienced uh, racism when i was growing up and he was growing up uh, of a different kind but i'm so it's sad that you had to write it but i'm glad that people like you have started you know calling it out and writing about it and look it's again going back to what we were saying at the start i don't think andrew and i are going to sit here and call out racism every day that's not how it works but from time to time you just need to remind people that hey it's not gone away and when we see that we experience racism it does not paint australia in a bad light it paints certain australians in a bad light but the fact that you need to keep learning and you need to keep moving on and getting better that message is never going to change no i i think all you, all you can do is really um talk about your experiences they happen that they're real you don't want to always talk about it because it takes a takes an emotional toll i mean but to be fair i mean i don't i don't feel like i get racially abused um in australia anymore i thought to think that it's cuz my my heritage i mean that's we had our turn yeah. in the 80s and 90s and generally in australia there's always a group that cops more yeah. 
than another, and I think for me that's that's changed. But I'll always I'll always remember that that time though. You, you never forget it. The the, the Hanson years and and that it just seemed to escalate. Like I used to think up until I was probably about in my mid twenties, I used to think, oh, is this person racist and can I be friends with them? And and I sh- you shouldn't think that, but it's yeah. it's crazy. Isn't it? I always thought that. Um, that's why I always thought that you know, does this person, if this person doesn't like me, are they not liking me because I'm, yeah. I'm racist or, or maybe they just don't, don't like me because they don't think I'm a good bloke, <laughs> which could be right as well. Yeah, yeah. Right, but it's introducing this thing where you're second-guessing yourself all the time based on something you've got no control over. Yeah, exactly. But I think Australia's changed. I think, I think the fact that this stuff gets called out now by white Australians yeah. shows that it's, it's, it's a lot better than it was uh, when, when I was growing up, for sure, and, um, and definitely back to in the 60s and 70s. Well, I wasn't alive then, so I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. talking about <laughs> from what I've heard. I would really want to give a shout-out to someone like Clancy Cinnamon, like our dear friend who used to do videos and do an extraordinary job for Cricket Australia. I mean, he comes from this tiny town called Jackson in, in the hinterland of Queensland, and he's always spoken about never having seen any non-white people growing up. But and he's just 26, 27. For him, the number of times he stood up for me in these kind of situations, I remember once at uh, on the Gold Coast a couple of years ago when I was covering India Australia women's game, and at the Gabba a couple of times back to back years, the way he stood up for me filled me with a lot of confidence that the next generation, regardless of whether you come from big metros like Sydney and Melbourne, where I was going to say Adelaide, I didn't stop myself. <laughs> and when you're used to seeing like, you know, or when you're used to seeing people from different races, uh, but for someone like Clancy, a kid like him to come from that background, and he really started seeing multicultural face of Australia after he moved out from there. But for him to be so understanding and curious to know about how it feels for me, the number of times he's jumped in front of me and said, Oi, you don't speak to my friend like that. It, it really like fills me up with a lot of confidence that Australia is moving in the right direction and that we will reach a point where oh, it'll never go away. Look, racism is never going to go away. Any kind of discrimination is never going to go away. Like I said, in India, it's uh, it just every time I come here, uh, if it's not on race, it's something else. It's religion or caste or gender or it just keeps increasing so I think Australia is on, on a path where like like you said like white Australians calling it out and white Australians jumping out in support of people like Andrew and me it's a great sign and uh, hopefully I mean I, I believe things will not improve but things will keep heading in the right direction. Well here's hoping uh, you've both written really well on the subject we're very lucky to have you both as colleagues Andrew Wu, Bharat Sundarason thanks for joining the final word. Thanks for having me. And he dive. Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon at the end of that conversation with Andrew Wu from The Herald and Brett Sunderason and really to speak for itself, uh, the experiences that, that Will we had here six years ago, um, you know, I was with him throughout the course of that. It was a thoroughly awful experience for him to go through and to watch it at close quarters and, and see the dignified way in which he carried himself and I'm glad he's written about it upon returning to India on this occasion, it's an important story. And a very dignified discussion as well, um, the way that they worked through the issues there, it was uh, a privilege to be able to sit and listen and learn a bit while doing so. So I hope that that was the experience for people on the other end of the headphones as well. All right. If you like what we do on The Final Word, patreon.com forward slash The Final Word. Jeff has to run. He's going to go to Brett Sunderason's book launch. You can find that. Well, I don't know where you can find Brett's book, but I'm pretty sure we're going to put a, 
a link to it in the show notes because we're good blokes like that. If you like what Jeff and I do more generally, there's lots of it. Um, our YouTube channel has been going great guns because we've been covering the India test matches day by day. Uh, Jeff, taking the headphones off, he's going. So I'll just wrap this up solo. So the YouTube channel has been going great guns, which is cool. And if you haven't subscribed there, please do so. I'll be back with Jeff making those from indoor next week. Uh, we'll have Brat with us there as well, of course. And Daniel Norcross, who's joining the broadcast with me on SEN for the third and fourth test matches. I'm sure he'll also find his way in front of a camera or behind a microphone on the final word through the course of the fortnight that he's joining us in India. Okay, uh, the next thing you'll hear in the feed from us will be story time with, I think that's going to be a Jeff and me story time. I haven't quite worked it out, but that'll be dropping on the weekend. And for now, I'm going to take a breather and lay down for a while. Okay, bye. I had to go.